Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our will. Set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are in the book of 2 Chronicles. Uh, it's probably a, a, a book that many of us, myself included, have not spent a lot of time in. Uh, but our encounter with God, the daily Bible study that we provide, explored 2 Chronicles uh, over the fall. And I found it to be a very hopeful, very encouraging book. And that will be our study over the next four weeks, 2 Chronicles. Now, 2 Chronicles, uh, actually the book, First and Second Chronicles, is really just one book. We put a chapter break or a book break in the middle. Originally just one history, and it told the story of King David and King Solomon, two of the real pillars of Old Testament history. The First Chronicles deals with King David. Second Chronicles deals largely with uh, the reign of Solomon, David's son. And uh, our passage this morning, the first chapter of Second Chronicles, the focus of this chapter is really the establishment of King Solomon's reign. That's what the passage has to tell us. And our outline for this morning will just be three simple questions. And these are three simple questions that you should and you cannot use when you're approaching any passage of the Bible. First question is, what does the passage say? Simply, what do the words on the page mean? Second question we're going to ask is, what is it, or what says, and then the second question, what does it mean? What's the larger context of the passage that we're reading? Third and final, what does it mean to me? So we'll spend some time considering application. So first, what does the passage say? It's the establishment of Solomon's throne. And his first act, I think the, par the paragraphs uh, provide a nice little three-point sermon. So his first act as king is he leads his people in worship. We all see that he led God's people, but note the author of this passage is drawing us our special attention to where God's people worshipped. They worshipped at a place called Gibeon, and Gibeon is important because of what's at Gibeon. What is at Gibeon is, well, there's a tent, a tent where God's people had met during with Moses in the uh, uh, in the wilderness, and there's an altar. There are artifacts from religious, uh, from Israel's religious past, and that's where Solomon takes his people. He goes back to some of the old ways, and lo and behold, as God, he seeks God there, and lo and behold, he finds God. Uh, God meets him, and uh, the one thing we know about Solomon, if you know anything, is that he was wise. And lo and behold, here, God is, grants Solomon his, his one request, that he would be wise. Third and final, what this passage says is that it, Solomon's reign was established and firmly established. Uh, he had military security, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, uh, financial prosperity, Silver and gold as common as stone. That's verse 15. He had international security, international peace. These names that our reader did such an excellent job articulating, uh, these names of nations are significant only in the fact that these are traditionally Israel's sworn enemies. So Egypt, Syria, uh, the Hittites, these are the bad guys. But not so under Solomon's reign. Under Solomon's reign, even he's at peace even with his friends. 
That's what the passage says. Solomon sought God in worship according to the old ways. He sought God and God, he found God and was given what he needed for his leadership. And it worked. A three-point sermon. Worship God, pursue wisdom, and it will work. Doesn't that sound great? Wouldn't that be great if that were the case? Friends, worship God, pursue wisdom, and it will work. There are a couple of problems with that outline. So now we shift from what the passage says to what the passage means. And there are a couple of outlines of that hypothetical three-point sermon. Worship, pursue wisdom, and life will work. Number one problem is it doesn't. Yes, we all know of the good stories in which someone does worship God, pursue wisdom, and it works. One of my favorite stories, you've heard it many times, the story of Eric Little, the track star. He worshiped God. He won. You could actually substitute that W so you could continue with the alliteration. Worship, wisdom, and you'll win. We know that story. We know Eric Little's story. You probably do not know the story of William Borden of Yale. William Borden of Yale. Anybody? Nope, no one knows that story. I'll tell you why. Uh, William Borden was a son of a very successful uh, family. He turned his back on a tremendous fortune. He a, his family was in Colorado, but he turned his back to serve the missionary effort. He turned his back on his family and his fortune. His father was very disappointed for his life decision. Uh, went to Yale, graduated from Princeton in the year 1912. And by all accounts, he was just a, a star. He was, even at a young age, 21, 22, was given significant positions of leadership, the China Inland Mission. He was the board of directors of some really prestigious organizations. I mean, he was uh, just on a meteoric rise. His great hope was to serve the Uyghur people in northern China, that, uh, the Muslim or Islamic community that's still in the news today. That was his great hope. And on his way to northern China, he studied uh, Arabic in Cairo, and while in Cairo, contracted meningitis, and in 1913, he died. In his journal were found these words, three headings over the journal, uh, over his personal journal that were found posthumously. First phrase was, no reserves. And this was written when he turned his back on his family's fortune. No reserve. Second, a few years later, as he was about to graduate from seminary and head off to serve the Uyghur community, he wrote this phrase. No retreat. Finally, in Cairo, shortly before he died, he added these words. No regret. That story just doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. Worship God, pursue wisdom. That's what William Borden did, and he died in Cairo. You see, we like the Eric Little story because it comports to the pattern we have in Solomon's life. What do you do with William Borden? It doesn't fit. That's the problem, first problem of this three-point hypothetical sermon. Second problem, it doesn't even fit Solomon's life. Now, this is going to require just a little bit of background of biblical history. 
Uh, so bear with me. It's important as we begin to apply this passage. Now, there are this, the events that are, rec- are recorded in the book of Chronicles, the, events, the, the historic events of King David's life and King Solomon's life, they're recorded twice. There are two places where these events are recorded. In the same way, Jesus' life has four Gospels. So King David and King Solomon's life are recorded twice. If you would flip to the back uh, from Chronicles, flip towards the front of the book, you'll encounter the books Samuel and Kings. These books as well uh, cover the life of King David and King Solomon. However, the accounts are remarkably different. In, King, in Samuel, that history book, you get all of the nitty-gritty details of King David and King Solomon. And you know what? There are a lot. King David... Yes, he did a lot of good things, but he had some serious moral failures. David and Bathsheba, to name one, is an adulterous affair that led to murder. And the, uh, the book of Samuel spares no punches in presenting the nitty-gritty of the life of King David. Same with Solomon. Solomon had a high upside. He was very wise. Absolutely. But Solomon had an unhealthy appetite. And in those previous histories, we're told that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and that his adulterous desires led the entire nation astray. And this as well is recorded in that history, but not in the book of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles almost whitewashes, it gives us only the good parts version. What's going on? Why? Here's why. These two books, these two accounts of history are written by two different authors in two different times with two very different purposes. Let me tell you the purpose and the author's purpose in writing Samuel. That history book that shows all the details, all the sordid details of King David and King Solomon. Shortly after King Solomon's reign, the whole nation was wiped off the face of the map. They were sent into exile. And King and Samuel is written right around that time period, a history to tell the people of God to answer this question. How did we get in? How did we, the people of God, get in the mess that we're in? Samuel has a great answer for you. He says, I'll tell you why. You want to know how you got in the mess you're in? Because you messed up. From the highest points of leadership on down to the lowest, from great King David to great King Solomon, you turned away from God. You want to know how you messed up? I'll tell you how. The book of Chronicles is written much later, around the year 400 BC, about 200 years after that uh, history of Samuel was written. The people of God are in a very different position. They have been exiled, they have been deported, and they now begin to trickle back, trickle back to their homeland. And they are just a stump of what they once were. Matter of fact, the book of Ezra records some of the older men crying uh, as the temple is rebuilt, their place of worship. Why are they crying? Because they're just a shell. They're just a shell of what they once were. And the book of Chronicles is written then. And it provides the answer to this question. Not the question that Samuel was asking. He was asking, how do we get in this mess? The book of Chronicles is asking a different question. How do we get out of it? Samuel wrote to a rebellious people, 
Chronicles was written to a beleaguered people. And in the book of Chronicles has a satisfying answer. How do you get out of the mess you're in? The prophet Jeremiah has a, summarizes what Solomon did. The prophet Jeremiah says, Stand by the road and look. Look for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Look to the ancient paths. And that's what Solomon does. He goes back. He goes back to these places like Gibeon, to the altar, to the tent of meeting where there were these religious artifacts from Israel's past. And he says the old ways are still the good ways. And where God was met, in the past, where God's people met God in the past, he will still be met in the present. And the message to these beleaguered, to these worn out, to these tired people who are tempted to give up is that the old ways are still the good ways. And when you seek him in the old paths, you will still find him. Now, how does this apply to you and me? Third and final. Seek God according to the old ways, and you will find him there. Seeking God is a little bit like playing hide-and-go-seek with my youngest daughter, Susie. We should not think of seeking God as a wandering out into the great unknown, a walk in the woods. No, God is where he always has been. Just like my little daughter Susie is always hiding behind the same tree. For Solomon, seeking God according to the old ways meant heading to a place. It meant heading to Gibeon, to a tent, to an altar. That's not the case for you and me. God has told us where he will be found. He'll be found in his word, in your private devotions, in your prayers. He'll be found here in worship. He'll be found here at the table. These are the old ways. These are the ways that God has met his people in the past. And the old ways are still the good ways. And the place where God met with his people in the past are still the places where he meets with them today. This week we encountered yet another delay in our return to normalcy. I'll have a warden speak a little bit about this. It's frustrating. I'm frustrated because it seems so easy. The delay is simply getting the power company to run power from the pole to the building. It seems so easy. And I'm frustrated because it seems so easy. And I'm frustrated also because I feel like your leadership, your vestry, and your staff has done a very good job in leading us in prayer and fasting. And when I first got that news, I said something that I know all of us have said at some point in time. Why bother? It wasn't an existential crisis, but it certainly was a passing thought. 
And I know all of us have been in the why bother moments. It doesn't seem to do any good. Maybe the old ways are just not any good. We're going to end our sermon with a song. It's not a church song, it's a country song. I guess it's kind of synonymous sometimes, isn't it? Uh, it's from a movie. It's called A Star is Born, which I hear is depressing, therefore I don't watch it. I don't do depressing <laughs> movies. It's a good movie, so I hear. Uh, this song is called Maybe It's Time to Let the Old Ways Die. It's a great song. And I just imagine some old cowboy leaning on the pommel of his saddle, watching the times change, thinking, gosh, you know, maybe it's just time. And my hunch is that some of us have thought the same thing in regards to faith. Maybe it's just time to let the old ways die. And the answer that the chronicler provides to beleaguered followers of God is no. No. The old ways are still the good ways. Chronicler writes to a beleaguered people and tells them that the good ways, the old ways, are still good ways. And the place where God met with his people in the past are those same places where God meets with his people in the present, in the old ways. <laughs>